Five years ago, uh, Pastor Ray and I uh, preached a series on heaven. Actually, I think it's four. Someone actually corrected me. I think it was maybe four, but whatever. It's a long time. It's a bunch of years ago. Uh, we preached a series on heaven. And uh, how many of you were here for that series when we preached the first series on heaven? Okay, it's amazing how much we've been, when we've been growing. Uh, lots of you weren't uh, here for that. Um, but, you know, when we preach that series on heaven, there's something about when you start to speak about eternity that there, God has put a desire. There's something deep inside of the human heart that longs for eternity. And, uh, I mean, we get billions and trillions of years forever. We're going to live on the other side of this lifetime. We get this measly 70 or 80 years here. Now, for many Nor- Christians here in North America, we still spend much of our life scurrying around for temporary stuff in this lifetime. But the moment we speak about eternity, something awakens and people just long for it. And so certainly we stirred something uh, that last series when we preached that there uh, four or five years ago. And uh, to this day, it's our, still our fastest. It's our most, uh, one of our most demanded uh, series. Not a month goes by, and I, and I walk by the front desk, and those wonderful ladies we have working at the front desk, and they're printing off more and more CD series and DVD series and all that sort of stuff. So it really stirred something. And so uh, some of you who were here for that last one, you might be wondering to yourselves, well, uh, I mean, why are you preaching another one? Are you, uh, are you planning to change the whole thing? Um, and the answer is no. I stand b- behind everything uh, me and Pastor Ray said the first time. Uh, the reason I'm preaching, this, uh, uh, preaching another series on heaven is because I want to change it. We were certainly in the, in the right direction. We're still in the right direction. But since then, I've had a lot of opportunity to learn much more about heaven. And the scripture has so much more to say about it. And so I just want to bring it into even clearer uh, focus. And uh, two things I just want to highlight for you. Today's message will be a little bit introductory. Uh, next week I'm going to preach a, a message called What is Heaven? And we're going to sort of get very, very specific about this thing. But, um, but two things I've been, I've been studying that really led up to this series. One thing is I've been studying uh, Jewish uh, thought. How did the Jews think about God and how did they think about life in general? I, I, I think it's a Holy Spirit thing, but I've just had this obsession. I've been reading a lot of books and, and, and studying. How did the Jews think? Because uh, all the authors of Scripture were Jewish. And so when you start to try and get into their mindset a little bit, how did they think about the world? How did they think about God? How did they think about eternity? How did they think about heaven? And when you get into their heads a little bit, the Scriptures come alive. And as I've been uh, studying this a lot, uh, one of the things that has come to my attention is, is uh, just that we modern Christians bring a huge bag full of assumptions to the table every time we open up the Bible. And we don't even know we're there. We, we read them as if the writers of Scripture were just like us. They were North Americans living in the 21st century. And they were Jews. And they thought radically different. And so we will read things that they said something in here and they had a certain picture in mind and a certain idea they were trying to communicate and we read into that our own uh, colored perceptions. And often we, we totally miss what it was they were trying to say. And this has hugely affected many, many different things which I'll be preaching about in the coming years and stuff as we go. But certainly it's affected the way we think about heaven and the way we think about God. And so over the next few weeks, I want to systematically begin to pull back, uh, peel back some of the assumptions you have about heaven. And even if you were here for the first series, I tell you, you still have most likely some serious assumptions about heaven. And those assumptions are weighing you down and keeping you from longing for heaven. They are making you think of heaven as a boring place that you really don't want to go and helping encourage you to continue living for this temporary lifetime as, this, as if this is the best that it gets. So that was, that's one thing I've been studying is, is uh, Jewish thought. And, and the other thing I've had the opportunity to do is I uh, had the opportunity last year to take a, a distance course from a, 
a Bible college in the States. And, and the primary component of the course was actually, it was a scripture survey, essentially, of everything the Bible has to say about heaven. And I was shocked, first of all, by how much is in here about heaven. There is so much about heaven in this, in this book. Um, and then it's amazing what happens uh, uh, when you put all the verses together, when you bring all the passages together, a stunning, spectacular picture begins to emerge. Just absolutely spectacular. And, and so the verses, I'm going to, scads, we're going to go through scads and scads of verses in the next few weeks. Um, and, and none of these verses, for most of you, none of these verses will be new. It's all stuff many of you have read before, if you've been a Christian for any length of time. But what happens usually is we read one verse about heaven in our devotions, you know, one day, and then a few weeks later we happen across another one. And, and by then we're not thinking about this one. We don't tie them together. And so there's something spectacular, I tell you, is going to happen when we bring them all together. This picture begins to merge, to emerge that is absolutely uh, wonderful. And as we go through this series, my prayer is that a flutter, a little flutter, will begin to open up in your heart. This little bit of a desire, a seed of desire, I want to go and be with Jesus. It's not just about the place, it's about who's there in that place as well. And a little bit of a flutter, and if you feed that flutter in the coming months and and weeks and years by spending time with Jesus... And soaking in some of these truths, a full-fledged longing will begin to emerge in your heart. And when that longing comes, it will change how you live on this earth. It'll change you. So let's pray and then let's get into this series on heaven. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, more and more as I study this stuff, I am genuinely looking forward to being with you in heaven. And Father, my prayer request today, Lord, our lives would be radically changed. Father, if we could just see the truth of how amazing you are and how amazing this place is that you've created called heaven. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that by your power, I cannot open these people's hearts just by talking to them about truth. Father, you must begin to reveal it in their hearts. And I pray that seeds will be planted today and every week during this series. Seeds of longing for eternity and for you and for heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I just want to do a bit of an introductory message today, and, and uh, in the second half of this message, I want to talk about a big assumption. There's a massive assumption that is weighing all of us down that is going to keep you from receiving many of the truths I want to tell you about heaven in this series, and we'll deal with that in the second half. The first thing I want to tell you is this, is that uh, the Bible actually commands us. The Bible says we are supposed to lay up hope in heaven. For a lot of Christians, they think of heaven as sort of a novelty, like, well, that's cool, and after we die, we'll go and find out more about it, but you can't really, you shouldn't really think about it too much, too much right now. And, if, and the truth is actually the exact opposite, and I'll show you a few passages right now, and I don't even have time to show you all of them, but the Bible clearly says we are supposed to lay up hope in heaven. We're supposed to desire it. Paul says this in Colossians 1, 3-5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because, why do they have faith and love for the saints? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The NIV, I like the way the NIV translates this as well. It actually talks about, Paul says, I'm thankful for the faith and love you have for all the saints that springs out of the hope you have laid up in heaven. There is something about having hope laid up in heaven that causes you to change in this lifetime, that causes faith and love for other people to spring out of you now in this lifetime. The problem is that most of us Christians, and again, every self-respecting Christian, there's no question, every self-respecting Christian here today, every single one of you, I don't doubt it's 100%. If I asked you before the service and after the service, do you have hope in heaven, all of you would say yes. I mean, every Christian says they have hope in heaven. In fact, that's probably one of the biggest reasons why we all get saved. 
Because we want to go to heaven instead of hell. Isn't that true? That is not the kind of hope Paul's talking about in this passage. Paul is not talking about the hope in heaven, which really boils down to, I would prefer to go to heaven than hell. But what I really like is this life. That's what most Christians, their hope in heaven is it's an insurance policy. If all things being equal, we would rather live in this temporary life forever and not have to deal with weird heaven and horrible hell at all. That's not hope in heaven. That doesn't change your life in this lifetime. That's just a preference. I would rather go to heaven than hell. The kind of hope that Paul is talking about here, hope laid up in heaven, is a longing. That's the kind of thing that changes you. A longing. Where a person gets a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is boundlessly full of joy and energy and love and intensely interesting. And never the same. I mean, he's just amazing. Every day is new with him. And you get a revelation of this amazing person, you start to say, I actually want to live with him. He's not this boring spiritual figure. I actually want to live with him. He's very personable. Very physical, very real. And then when you get a revelation of this place he made, he's, he's amazingly creative, and you get this revelation of this place he made called heaven, and actually it's awesome there. And then out of that you begin to have this longing, I want to go and be with him. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's an advantage to die and go and be there with Jesus. That's the kind of hope that changes your life. You begin to hope, have hope laid up in heaven. I want to go be in heaven with Jesus. It's an amazing place and he's an amazing person. But most uh, earthly-minded Christians, their preferences are, are this way. Jerry, if you could throw that up there. Our preference for, is, is this lifetime. This is what we're living for. This is, this is the goods. And then heaven is sort of the consolation prize. Well, we all know we have to die sometime. So since we have to die, well, insurance policy, I'll believe in Jesus. And I guess after I die, I'll go to heaven. And it's better than the other place, right? That won't change your life. But hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to show you a different life where two and one get flipped around. That's when you change and you become full of faith and love for the saints. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart. There your thoughts will be. The desires of your heart will also be. Let me ask you something at the start of the series. Where are the desires of your heart? Every one of us would say our hope is in heaven. But the truth is, where are your thoughts and passions? That's where your treasure is. And the truth is that most of us, our treasure and our thoughts and our hopes are all completely invested in the temporary. But Jesus actually commands us in this same passage. He commands us to lay up our hopes in heaven rather than on earth. Look at this, two verses earlier. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is a command. Do not. It's not optional. It's not, well, you're a Christian now, so you're on your way to heaven, and, but now in the meantime, do whatever you can and, and enjoy the temporary. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust to destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I mean, everything here is temporary. The best success you can have is temporary. You get maybe 70 or 80 years here if you're lucky, and, and even the, the best things you get here on earth probably don't even last that long. Most of the things we're striving after last a couple of weeks or months or a couple of years. But whatever it is, just do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where it's temporary. It doesn't make any mathematical sense. You'll have 70 or 80 years here. You'll have trillions and trillions not ending on the other side. So why would you lay up treasures here instead of laying up treasures in heaven? Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus talked a lot about heaven. 
The whole Bible talks a lot about heaven. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, real treasure in a real place, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants our heart to be in heaven. Look what else Jesus says about this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. I mean, the kingdom of heaven is treasure, and he finds it, hee <laughs> and he covers it back up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I mean, he's not, the, tre- the, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. It's not this boring spiritual place. And the, and the person that gets a revelation of how amazing it is, it's not a big sacrifice for them, oh, I have to evangelize, and I i got to go to church, i got to give so much money and I, all this time to be a leader and a minister. And it's, oh, I'm such a spiritual person, i got to sacrifice. That is not a person who's had a revelation of heaven. A person who has had a revelation of who Jesus is and what heaven is like goes, woohoo, and gladly sells everything in this lifetime because they know that one's better. It's not even a sacrifice. It's not even a fair trade. I trade in temporary and lesser for eternal and amazing. That's what Jesus says about discovering the kingdom of heaven. And then this next part makes me feel good because everybody says that I repeat myself and Jesus repeats himself, so I'm just doing what Jesus does, right? <laughs> so he just says it again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl, not two or three pearls, he finds one pearl. A lot of Christians want to have the best of both worlds. I want to enjoy this lifetime as much as I can for to me to live is gain and to die is gain. I get gain on both sides. Paul said for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain is on the far side. He finds one pearl. He doesn't grab the earth pearl and the heaven pearl and I got the best of both worlds. He finds one pearl of great value. Went and sold all that he had so that he could hang on to the one. Now I know for some of you, especially some of you young men here, uh, you know, the analogy of a pearl, that, gone. Okay? Not motivating to you. All right? So I think if, if Jesus was here today, I think he would use a different analogy. I'm pretty sure. Um, I've asked him for forgiveness if this is wrong, but uh, I'm pretty sure he would use an analogy more like a Big Mac. So I'm going to talk about a Big Mac for just a second, okay? <laughs> or my soul. And just to set this up a little bit, I really like Big Macs. I've always liked Big Macs. I love them. In fact, I, to be honest with you, I love every burger at McDonald's, except the filet fish That's an old person burger, okay? <laughs> that is an old person burger. If I see you flight, you know what I think, okay? But anyway, I love the burgers there, okay? And growing up, love burgers at McDonald's. So when we were young, um, uh, I mean, our parents would say, you guys can go wherever you want to go. And of course, they didn't mean that. Parents always say that. And if they would pick some of the restaurants, they'd be like, no, you can't go there. But, you know, where do you guys want to go? And always, the same thing, me and my brothers and sisters, McDonald's. I mean, what else is there? I mean, the pleasure. You get that Big Mac, you chew that thing down. Oh, it's so good. And there's no question. I mean, most of you here agree with me, unless you're just a little weird. But a Big Mac tastes good. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so you go there. Now, it's at a certain point in your life, so you enjoy McDonald's, 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 Big Mac, Big Mac, Big Mac. At a certain point in your life, and I don't remember the first time for me, but at a certain point, everybody gets introduced to a new food group, and that food group is called steak, okay? <laughs> mm. And steak is a whole new level. You enjoy Big Macs. It's not to this day. Right now, I could eat a Big Mac, no problem, awesome, very good. But then you come to have a steak, and this, this ste- a steak is a, it's a whole other level. I mean, uh, twice in the last few years, twice in the last few years, I've had the opportunity to go to a, a restaurant in Winnipeg called 529 Wellington, okay? I know some of you are thinking right now, 
how much are we paying this guy? Okay? Is that where my tithe money is going? So I just want to, just so you're not thinking that, I didn't have to pay for it, okay? We left before we got the bill. Uh, no, I did not do that. I did not do that. Okay? We got taken there. But anyway, we got taken there a couple times. And in the last few years, twice I've been at 529 Wellington, both times at a stake. And, and right now, at this moment, yeah, there they are. I can see them. Hmm. I, I, honestly, I'm not even exaggerating. Oh, I, they're good. I can still, I can taste them. I remember what they taste like, cutting through that thing. and just melt in your mouth. Now, when you eat a steak at 529 Wellington, I mean, you, you don't gobble that thing down. It's like, for the steak there. It's like 20 minutes. You just, mmm. Oh, you make lots of noises. Oh, that's so good. And you savor that thing. I mean, it's a whole new level. That is, I mean, there's eating. Now, a Big Mac, I get anywhere from 90 to 100 seconds of pleasure with a Big Mac as I gobble that thing down, okay? And then afterwards, it just gives me nothing. But we won't even go to where it, what it gives me after that. It's, but it just, it's 90 to 100 seconds, right? And a steak is, oh, yeah. But you see, that? I mean, a steak, huge. When I just knew Big Mac... I was glad to have a Big Mac, but once you know a steak like that, totally different thing. Now, if someone brought me two plates and put them side by side, one has a Big Mac and one has a 529 steak on it, and he said, you can only have one, you can't have the best of both. You're going to have to totally sell it on one in order to grab a hold of the other one. The sentence isn't even out of their mouth. Is that a sacrifice for me? The Big Mac is gone and I've got the steak. <laughs> and it's not a sacrifice like, oh, me or my. I mean, I have to go without TV sometimes because I'm doing ministry. I got to go, you know, I got to lose some sleep sometimes because I want to get up early and spend time in, in devotions with God. It's not, a, it's not a sacrifice to get rid of the temporary for the real thing. And that's why I want to preach this message series. Because we have an absolutely pathetic picture of Jesus and a pathetic picture of the place that he made to spend eternity with us, which is heaven. And many Christians today, they view this lifetime, that's the Big Mac, and they view heaven and eternity with Jesus as that's like a cold, hard potato. And when you view heaven and Jesus that way, and temporary earth as Big Mac, it's no wonder everybody's trying to get as much success and enjoyment out of this lifetime as they can. Because then after I die, well, then I guess I'll go enjoy all that spiritual stuff, singing all the time and blah, 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 boring stuff. I don't enjoy it now, but I'll, I'll, I'll just have to do it then. But right now, I'm going to get as much of this temporary Big Mac as I can. That's how many Christians are living. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I just want to come against that in this series. And I want to radically change your vision because once you see, you get a revelation in your heart of what heaven and Jesus is really like, it's not hard to sacrifice the temporary. And so now in the rest of this message now, I want to attack the big assumption. There's a massive assumption sitting on your back. And even if you were here for the last series, part of it is still on you. I can almost guarantee it. And I want to attack an assumption because we're going to look at lots of things. Over this series, we're going to look at some things that will fascinate you. It's in Scripture. You will become fascinated by heaven. You know what? It's not bad to be fascinated. Some Christians in some places, they think that you shouldn't be fascinated. A message should not be fascinating because that's somehow worldly. No, you're going to be fascinated by some of the things we're going to see in here. And some of the things are going to stun you and shock you. You're going to go, what? That was in the Bible. Wow. And some of the things are even going to make you actually a little bit uncomfortable at first. But the reason they're going to make you uncomfortable is not because they're not in here. They're going to make you uncomfortable because it's going to go against everything you've ever thought about heaven and Jesus. And at first you're going to think, Chris, you can't talk about heaven that way. And it's not because you have Bible verses against it. It's because you have this assumption on your back, and that's what I want to deal with in the rest of this message now. So let me start this off by just making a statement on which this message series is built, and then we'll look at the assumptions that will bother you 
out of that statement. And here's a statement on which the rest of this series the next few weeks will be built. It is, heaven is a completely physical place. And now, any of you who was here for the last series, you go, oh, that's not new. That's what you said in the last one, okay? I want you to notice the word there, completely. We did talk a lot about the fact that heaven is a physical place in the last series. And lots of you came on board and said, yeah, I get that, it's physical. But many of you are still uncomfortable with the complete physicality of heaven. And you're okay with it being a little bit physical, but you still think of heaven as mostly spiritual. It's a little bit physical, yeah, Chris and Pastor Ray taught us that, but it's still uh, mostly spiritual. And you say, no, I don't, I don't think that, okay? Over the next few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about how physical heaven is. And let's see if you feel uncomfortable with it. Heaven is a completely, completely physical place. Okay? It exists right now somewhere in this universe in space-time. So you're ready. Some of you go, oh, oh. It exists in this universe? It exists in space-time. It's somewhere out there right now. It's a real place somewhere out in the universe right now. It is completely physical. It is completely material. When you go there, you will most certainly eat there. Most of you have no problems with that. Oh, okay, good. You will almost certainly sleep there. Some of you go, oh, because you've been told your life, we won't sleep in heaven. Yeah, that was part of God's punishment to Adam and Eve. You sin, now you have to sleep. <laughs> See, I'm not the wacky one. I'm not the wacky one. I'm going to tell you some stuff that's going to stun you in this series, and you're going to think I'm wacky. I'm not the wacky one. I mean, you read the books out there right now, and people are talking about how you're going to ride on the back of a grizzly bear and fly off a cliff in heaven and all that sort of stuff. That is just plain weird. You will almost certainly sleep there. You will most certainly work there. You will work hard, and it'll be good. There will be farmers there. Most of you are okay with that because farming seems like kind of a spiritual kind of job. There will also be mechanics there, I can almost guarantee you. Mechanics in heaven? No. Singers, maybe a few farmers. Government, definitely. There may even be repairmen. Repairmen, Chris, in heaven. Some of you are uncomfortable to talk about, see, when I get specific, you're, you're okay with me saying heaven is a physical place, but you're not okay with me saying getting specific about how physical it is. And the reason many of you are not okay with me getting specific, the laws of, gra- of gravity and physics, by the way, all apply in heaven. You're bothered by it, not because of anything in here that tells you opposite. In fact, I'm going to show you many things in here that will set up for you exactly everything I'm saying here today. You're bothered not because of a Bible verse. You're bothered because of an assumption that you don't even know is there. And I can trace it back for you 2,400 years to a man named Plato. And I will in just a moment. But before I do that, I just want to bug you a little bit more. Because you might be okay with me saying, heaven is a physical place, but many of you are not okay with me saying specifically how physical it is. Let me say something else to you. Everything that lives in heaven is physical, and that includes angels. Everything that lives in heaven is physical, and that also means angels. Angels are made out of stuff just like we are. Angels are made out of atoms and molecules just like we are. Again, for some of you, no. Atoms and molecules. Genesis 1, God made the whole universe, including atoms and molecules and everything that makes up the physical stuff that we know, and he said what? It is very good. Many of us, because of Greek assumptions we have, think that when God made the universe, he made it sort of good, but it's sort of second rate, and then he made this alien world, heaven, which is nothing like this one. This one has atoms and molecules and sleep, eating, and this one is 
la-di-da, floating in the clouds, and that's a better one somehow. Yuck. God made this one over here and said, it is very good. But then I start saying, angels are made of atoms and molecules. Oh, that's weird, Chris. They eat. They eat. Let me prove this to you. Psalm chapter 78. There's just one. I'm just giving you one teaser today. The future weeks will go do lots more. One teaser today. Psalm 78. This is a verse many of you have read. Lots of you have read through the Psalms in in your devotional readings and stuff. Um, But we read, everything we read about heaven, we read with glasses. And so I'm going to show you some stuff in this verse you probably never thought about before in your life. And you've probably read over it a few times if you've been a Christian for a number of years. Psalm 78 is giving us a little bit of background to the manna story. And we all know the manna story, right? Exodus 16, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they go into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and God feeds them with manna, right? For 40 years, every morning, the Israelites get up, they come out of their tents, there's white stuff on the ground. And the white stuff, they gather it up, they eat it, it tastes like wafers with honey, and it's good, and it keeps them alive, it gives them all the new, they chew it down, they swallow it, their body breaks it up, all the molecules, atoms, vitamins, everything, and it sustains them for 40 years. Now because of Greek assumptions, which I'm talking talk about in just a moment when we get to Plato, um, because of our Greek ways of thinking, we view stories like that in a very Greek way that the Jews weren't even, then the writers of Scripture weren't even thinking about. When we think about manna, we think about, well, God just... Oh, Israelites are in the wilderness. Off top of his head, spot of the moment, he invents manna out of nothing. And it's never existed before. It's never been anywhere else before. No one's ever eaten of it before. Manna, there it is. That's how we think about manna, okay? Psalm 78 shows us that we think wrong about manna, gives us the background to what manna was and is. Here it is, Psalm 78. Yet he, that's God, commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the what? The grain of heaven. The grain of heaven. When God gave the Israelites manna, he did not on the spot think of something that had never existed before and presto, there it is. He gave them the grain of heaven. In other words, they're growing grain in heaven. There's grain there. And it's good food, and he transported it from there, he transports it here, and it's good food for human beings. Now, why are they growing grain in heaven? Well, because of this. Man ate the bread of the angels. They're using the grain of heaven, which the Israelites called manna, to feed the angels. The angels have to eat. Man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. Okay? Now, there's a whole bunch of things here about heaven that we learn in this one little passage. First of all, heaven is not some other dimension. I used to talk about heaven as another dimension too because basically, I just never thought about it and it sounded cool. I mean, heaven's another dimension and there's another dimension out there, all this sort of stuff. Well, no, actually no. Because there's grain in heaven and it's physical and it feeds physical beings up there and you transport it from here to here and it works here on earth too. It's still physical here. It's not glowing green and humming. And it's a weird radiation and interacting with electrons. It's the same. It's not another dimension and things are exploding and antimatter and all sorts of stuff. No, no. It's physical there. You transport it here. It's physical here. And it, and it was grown in heaven and the Israelites can put it in their mouth, chew on it, swallow it down. It's got molecules and atoms. Their body breaks it down, makes nutrients, vitamins, everything. And yummy, 40 years of it. The grain of heaven. The bread of angels. Now, this also tells us something about angels' bodies, doesn't it? Because human beings could eat 
angel food for 40 years and, and live and be healthy. Now that tells us something about how similar angel bodies are to ours, doesn't it? I mean, if God would have tried to feed the Israelites elephant food, they wouldn't have lasted four days. Because an elephant has such a vastly different body, it has to eat vastly different food. It needs different nutrients. You can't feed a human being for 40 years on grasshopper food or shark food or lizard food or snake food or bat food. None of those foods will sustain a human being for 40 years. But you can feed a human being angel food for 40 years and they do just fine. Which means that angels and humans are both very physical and both of them quite similar. Now the thing is, the reason we've gotten into this thinking about angels being spiritual instead of physical is because we mix up. We think that because something is sometimes invisible, since it's invisible, that means it's not material or substantial. But the fact that we sometimes can't see angels doesn't mean that they're not physical or material. Not at all. There's lots of things the human eye can't see. We can only see a very narrow bandwidth between red and, and very, very dark purple. And there are many animals, bees and snakes and birds, that can see things in the red, in the infrared, that we can't see with the human eye. That doesn't mean those things aren't there. You can go to NASA's website today, Google this, check me out. And uh, NASA, the, all the physicists and stuff, I took a degree in this anyway, in physics and math. And uh, physicists tell us now that if you took the whole universe and put it on a scale to weigh it, all the stuff of the universe put together, put on a scale, 95% of the stuff that makes up the universe is called dark matter. And you know why it's called dark matter? Because you can't see it. So just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. I mean, Balaam and his donkey. Let's rabbit trail here, okay? It's the last service. If we go over time, well, fine, okay? But Balaam's on his donkey... And uh, you all know that one, right? Numbers 22. He's riding his donkey. His donkey shies off the road. He hits him. Donkey keeps going. Donkey shies off the road. Hits him again. Donkey shies off the road a third time. Now Balaam loses it. And he's beating this donkey. And the donkey says, why are you beating me? What do you mean, why am I beating you? And why are you talking? <laughs> and then the Lord opens, opens Balaam's eyes. And he sees this huge angel on the road with a sword. And this angel was going to kill, and he meant it. This was not a joke. This angel was going to kill Balaam. Now, let me just ask you something. That donkey could sense that angel was there. That angel was physically there. You know, a wisp of air doesn't hold a sword that can cut off your head. That angel was actually there. And before Balaam could see him there, the donkey knew he was there. He was there before Balaam could see him. Just because something is invisible doesn't mean it's not material. I mean, even now, uh, we've got people in the American military right now working on cloaking devices, and this is true. You can Google this too. This is actually true. They've come up with devices, and they don't work very good yet, but if something is standing still, and it works with the way it reflects light around and stuff, it can actually cloak a device so that it looks like nothing is there. And you can have something in front of a tree, and this thing has a cloaking device, and it'll just look like there's nothing in front of the tree. So there's all kinds of reasons why we might not see angels. We might not be able to see heaven right now, which do not mean that they aren't physically, materially present. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that they are physical. So let me now finish this message with a brief history lesson. I know that some of you hate history. Okay, so let me just tell you, I have pictures. <laughs> pictures. I have, to tell, I have to give you this little history lesson because otherwise... Otherwise, this whole series, you're going to keep dragging me back. When I want to tell you cool stuff about heaven, you'll go, eh, I don't know about that. So let me show you why you're going, eh, I don't know about that. It has nothing to do with the Bible, and it starts with a man named Plato 2,400 years ago, okay? 
So here's Plato, ta-da, little snapshot, okay? Plato, uh, most of you have heard his name before, and uh, one of the most famous philosophers of all time, uh, Greek philosophers. And uh, Plato had a, and pagan, by the way, uh, very pagan, not, uh, you know, didn't believe in the God of Israel, the Bible, any of those sorts of things. He's pagan. And yet, and that's a scary thing when you think, I'm going to show you yet how much he influences the way you think today. But uh, Plato had a worldview called dualism. Dualism means two. Okay? He believed in two separate realities. There's spiritual reality and there's physical reality and they're, and they're separate. The physical is not spiritual and the spiritual is not physical. Physical reality consists of your physical body, the physical world around you. It consists of activities like sleeping and eating and hanging out with your friends and putting in a, a good day's work. Those are physical things in Plato's dualistic worldview. And those things are inferior to spiritual reality. Spiritual reality is, is, is uh, truth and philosophy and those sorts of things. And Plato taught that the spiritual is much, much superior to the physical. These things do not matter. You know, what you do for a living feeding yourself, sleeping. These are all inferior activities, but pursuing philosophy and truth, uh, that's superior. And then at the end of your life, if you would have told Plato, you know, we're going to live forever in a physical body, a physical place, he would have said, never. Never. The goal of existence is to philosophize and learn truth and put behind the material physical existence. And then after you die, and then it gets very vague and kind of new agey sounding, after your life you go up and you kind of become one with the supreme being mumbo jumbo, Okay. And you kind of just float away and you just, that, yeah, it's spiritual. It's not physical. Okay? Now I want you to notice, first of all, how incredibly unbiblical and unJewish that thinking is. Uh, and remember, the, the writers of Scripture were all Jewish. The, the writers of Scripture did not see two realities. There's not spiritual reality and physical reality in Scripture. There is only one reality, physical and it's infused with spiritual significance. Do you see the difference? There's not spiritual reality, phys- physical reality. There's just physical reality infused with spiritual significance. So in the Jewish mindset, everything you do from morning till night is spiritual because it can be done to please God or not please Him. But do you see already how many of us Christians today, we don't think biblically, we think dualistically. Many of us here today have got a burden, a heavy burden on us of dualistic thinking. We totally categorize our lives in terms of spiritual and non-spiritual activities. We think of spiritual activities as reading your Bible, fasting, prayer, going to church. Those are spiritual. But whether I exercise or eat right or if I play soccer with the guys after work, that's not spiritual. That's spiritual. That's not spiritual. The writers of Scripture had no two categories like that. When you got up in the morning, from the time you had breakfast, to hanging out with your friends, to putting in a good day's work, all of that, you either did it to please God or not, it was all spiritual, because physical is spiritual. Genesis 1, God saw everything that he had made, and it was good. He made a physical universe. But Plato said they're separate. And many of us Christians today, 2,400 years later, are still living under that separateness. And it totally affects the way we think about heaven too because we don't think of going to a material place. We think of leaving the material and going to a more spiritual place. But you can't separate in Scripture spiritual and physical. Very important. Well, how did Plato's thinking 2,400 years ago come to influence so many of us as Western Christians? And so let's just have a little fun tour through history here. Uh, Plato had a had a very famous student named Aristotle, and uh, there's, there he is, very handsome man. And, um, uh, and Aristotle studied under Plato for 20 years, and then Plato died. 
And, uh, and then Aristotle took a job after Plato died. He took a job in Macedonia tutoring a, a 12-year-old boy named Alexander. Now, history would, ra- would later add to Alexander's name the title, The Great. But about the only thing he was great at was sinning, okay? He was very good at that. But anyway, so uh, Alexander the Great studied under Aristotle, who steeped, steeped Alexander in this Plato thinking, Platonic thinking, which is dualism. And so Alexander studied under that and was tutored under that for 10 years. When he was 22, he sets out on a military campaign to conquer the world. Okay, and this is what Alexander the Great is famous for. Um, in, in 11 years, until he dies at age 33, he conquers basically the entire known world. Everything from Greece to India and down to Africa, 22,000 miles he covers. He conquers it all in 11 years, and, and him and his troops pretty much cover all of it on foot. So it's really incredible. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with how I think about spiritual and physical and heaven and all that sort of stuff? Well, the thing you have to know about Alexander the Great is Alexander the Great wasn't just a conqueror. He was also an evangelist of Greek culture. And so when he conquered, he didn't just conquer countries to conquer them. He had this idea that he was giving the world a gift. He basically thought of everyone who wasn't a Greek as a savage. And he thought, you know, Greek language and Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek architecture and Greek sport, everything that is Greek is, is so much better than everything else that if we can turn the whole world into Greek, it's called Hellenizing, right? I call it Greekifying. So he wanted to Greekify the world, and he thought that that was his gift to the world. He would improve people's lives. And so everywhere he went, he wouldn't just conquer the people. He would set up Greek school, schools and Greek libraries, and he would, and he would get you know, the Greek language going and Greek philosophy and Greek thinking everywhere he went. And uh, to help him in this, he founded 70 cities across his empire, 70 cities in 11 years. Uh, he was a busy guy. And he named all of these cities after himself, so he didn't have the burden of humility. But anyway, uh, he had 70 versions of Alexander whatever, and... Uh, one of the cities he founded um, was Alexandria in Egypt. And this city was very uh, important in the formation of, of the early church, okay? Alexandria in Egypt, it's still a very big city today, four or five million people. It's the biggest city on the Mediterranean Sea to this day. That's directly on the sea. And uh, in, uh, for about 800 years, now, like now it doesn't have much influence in the world uh, since uh, the Muslims took over in the 600s, 700s uh, A.D., But for about 800 years after Alexander founded it, this city was one of the most influential cities in the world. The only one that may have rivaled it or surpassed it was Rome, maybe. But Alexandria was the center of uh, of kind of world intellectualism. Like all the big philosophers and writers and intellectuals of the world that were was all in Alexandria in Egypt there, and it was it was the center of Greek thought and philosophy for the world. They say again, how does this? impact Christianity. Well, Alexandria was more than just for the Greeks. It was sort of like an ancient day New York City. Lots of different cultures and people of different faiths moved to Alexandria because it was kind of tolerant there. And so in Alexandria, you had one of the biggest Jewish communities in the world. During New Testament times, there's a huge Jewish community living in Alexandria. After Jesus went back to heaven, a few decades, decades later, big persecutions broke out in Israel. Lots of Christians moved to Alexandria. And so you had a huge Christian population in Alexandria as well. And so what began to happen in Alexandria is, is uh, you've got all these Greek-thinking people getting saved or Greek-thinking people who are saved moving in. And they're bringing, every time they get saved, they fall in love with Jesus. Yay, I love Jesus. But they're bringing with them their Greek assumptions into their faith. And it's no different. They're not bad people. It's no different than what you and I do. When you got saved and you met Jesus, you fell in love with him. It's not like right away you left all your assumptions at the door. 
Getting rid of some of your assumptions is sometimes a lifetime process, and it can be messy. So you've got this mingling happening in Alexandria. Now, at first, this mingling of Greek thought and, and, and Christian uh, thought uh, didn't harm the world church because the church in Jerusalem was led by the, the apostles, and that was sort of the head church of the world. And you can read about this in Acts. It was already happening in Acts. But for a few decades after Jesus went to heaven, if any church around the world had a problem, they had a doctrinal question or they had some kind of issue, they would send people to Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church would tell them what to believe and what to do. And the Jerusalem church wasn't influenced by Greek thinking. It was all the Jewish apostles who had known Jesus and then some of their successors later on. So as long as the Jewish church at Jerusalem was going strong, the whole world was kind of kept in line, even though some weird things were already happening in Alexandria. But then in 70 AD, church history was forever altered. And what happened is the Romans went into Jerusalem because they were really mad at the Jewish people. And they went into Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, and they began to drive the, well, they drove the Jewish people out of Jerusalem, and then they began to drive the Jewish people out of Israel uh, entirely, okay? And of course, this included the Jewish Christians. And so the church of Jerusalem, which was sort of the head church of the world, was sort of the leading church of the world, was now scattered, and there was like a power vacuum. Now, who, where, do, where do your questions go? And so there's this kind of power vacuum, and so it was right then and there, just a few decades after Jesus left, in those first few decades, the leadership of the church of the world was Jewish. And after that, it switched to Gentile, and it's never gone back. And into this vacuum of leadership now, in the city of Alexandria, a very important person for Christian history was born. His name was Origen, okay? Origen was born in 184 AD in Alexandria, into this vacuum, okay? And he was, a, he was a brilliant young man. His parents loved God, and his parents were wealthy. So his dad sent him to two schools, which was kind of rare in those days. He sent him to, to Greek school for philosophy and learning and how to think. And he sent him to a Christian school to learn about the Bible. And so right there already, you can see some of the mingling that's going to happen in Origen's life. Now, Origen was very passionate for God. And I'm, I'm going to show you now, he's had a bad influence on you today. But I want to show you, he wasn't a bad man. He didn't have bad intentions. He loved God. He's passionate for God. When he, I mean, and it doesn't necessarily look, you don't see, how can a guy like that have passion? But when he was 17 years old, <laughs> when he was 17 years old, okay, a, a, a little uh, persecution, a temporary persecution broke out in Alexandria against Christians. And, and, and uh, Origen's dad was actually hauled away and martyred. And Origen wanted to be martyred too. He was going to run out the door and join his dad and die for Christ. I mean, he just loved Jesus. And his mom ripped his clothes off him and hid them. And that's the only thing that kept him from going and being killed. Okay, he didn't want to go and be killed naked. So he stayed home. His mom, his mom saved his life, okay? After that, again, brilliant guy, he also has a passion for Scripture. And he has this belief that every single verse in the Bible can be applied to your life today. Now that's a, what a good guy, right? He sets out to write a commentary of the entire Bible, verse by verse, that will apply every single verse in the Bible, genealogies, anything, to your life today. And so he sets up to do that, and you think, well, what a, good, what, a, what a good thing. It was a very good intention, and he had a very good heart. The only thing is, he blatantly brought in his entire Greek worldview into his writing. And his Greek worldview said that you have a spiritual reality, you have a physical reality. Heaven is spiritual, God is spiritual, angels are spiritual, and everything here is inferior and physical. Whenever he would run into passages of Scripture, and there are many, as you will see in the series, that talk about the specific physicality of heaven and God and angels, whenever he would run into a verse like that, he couldn't accept that, his Greek thought. And by the way, this didn't just apply to heaven, many other doctrines as well. 
So whenever, but whenever he would run into verses like that, then he had a problem. He loved the Bible, but that didn't match up. So what he would do is he would call those verses allegories or poems. Does that sound familiar? It's still being done by teachers today. You run into something you don't like, you say, that's an allegory, that's a poem. And then you make it say whatever your worldview tells, it, tells you it should say. And so Origen had this great idea of making a commentary for everybody about the Bible. And what he ended up doing was just basically Greekifying the Bible. Now, some of his ideas were so wacky that the early church did say, they said, you know what, that's heresy. And, and some of them called Origen heretic. The problem is that lots of his ideas still seep through. And the next generation, because Alexandria was such a, a big, powerful, influential city, many of the most important Christian leaders came out of that area and that thinking and those schools. And so his ideas seeped in, and it was in the second century with Origen that Greek ideas first took root in the Christian church, and they've never been taken out. Since then, they've only grown. I want to read you a, a quote. This is from the Anchor Bible Dictionary, a very respected publication. Okay, I want to read you this. This should disturb you a little bit. All Christian theology, so here we are 1,800 years later. All Christian theology, all of it, is dependent, to an extent at least, on contemporary Greek philosophy, primarily Platonism. That's Plato's philosophy, dualism. But some Christian thinkers fall particularly strong under Platonic influence and properly merit the title of Christian Platonists. Many of the things you believe today, are, you do not believe because they're in here. You believe them because of a man named Plato 2,400 years ago, and then it got into the church through Origen and some of the rest. And that's a bit of a scary thing. And that's why I wanna, I'm very passionate to return us to the roots. How do, how is, what does this thing really say? So a couple hundred uh, years after Origen, this whole Greek thinking got another big boost from a brilliant intellectual named Augustine. And most of you have heard of Augustine. If you haven't heard of Origen, you've probably heard of Augustine. Augustine is one of the most respected church fathers in the Western church. You go to any seminary today, most of them love Augustine. And that bothers me a little bit because he might have been a godly man, just like Origen. He probably was passionate for Jesus, but he was very, very Greek. And the fact that we hold him in such high esteem is a little alarming to me about our own theology. Augustine is highly respected in Christian circles today. And listen to what the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church says about him. Augustine was radically, not a little bit. This, This again is probably one of the most important church fathers for modern theology. Pretty much any scholar would agree with me on that one. He's one of the most important church fathers for modern day f- uh, theology. And look what, look what it says there. Augustine was radically influenced by Plato. Radically. And here we are today. Here we are today as Christians dividing up our lives into spiritual and non-spiritual. Here, here we are today as Christians. We should be longing for heaven and for Jesus. And instead we think of heaven as this boring, spiritual, non-material place. And we think about heaven that way and we think about our li- lives in that, that, those ways, those spiritual and non-spiritual ways. Not because of the Bible, but because of Greek thinking. And so as we go through this series now, my goal is to show you, yes, you might be uncomfortable with some of the things at first, but now that you can see why you're uncomfortable with it, as you open your heart up to what the scriptures actually say about heaven, what's going to begin to happen is you're going to be allowed Some of you, for the first time in your life, you're going to be allowed to start to desire it because you are a physical person made for a physical world and you want to be with a physical Jesus forever in that physical place. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, open up our hearts that we can desire you, that we can desire to be with you in heaven. 
Lord, I pray that as this series goes on, your Holy Spirit will just enable us to receive these truths, that your word will come alive to us, that we would desire to read our Bibles and to get into this for ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.